Welcome to another week of Latter-day Conversations. We've got Cade and Mike as your hosts today, and we've got some questions that um, we pulled out of our backlog, but also a couple of them we had to kind of make on the spot because our backlog of questions is running a little low. So listeners, if you're one of our tens of listeners at this point, please come up with some questions and help us out. Um, we will be able to make some more because we've made um, pretty much all these questions that we've gone so far in this podcast, but we want to hear what you guys think and what you're interested in. So if you are listening to this podcast right now, after you're done listening or right now, just look in the description and there is a Google form where you can submit a question or a comment, um, a suggestion of a topic, and we would love to have it. So if you're a listener, send one in for us. We would love to, to address your question. Um, we want to talk about what's relevant to you guys. And um, so, yeah, we'd love to hear that. So with that being said, we're going to start in this week um, with some pretty good topics. We, we're going to start out with one on modesty, and I will ask that to Cade, and we'll get the conversation rolling. So Cade, what does it mean to be modest in dress? All right, that's a great question. And I don't know if I have a ton to say on this. I, for me, it's always been something fairly simple, but um, I don't know. I think modesty in, just in general is um, kind of just taking things in reasonable proportion, you know, um, that you're not going over the top or under the top, I guess, in another way. Um, but just basically just being moderate, I guess, you know, just like when you're eating, you don't engorge yourself as fun as that is sometimes. And so, uh, when you relate modesty to dress, for, for me, it, it, it really is just kind of that act of, of being presentable um, respectfully. Um, and, and kind of the way I look at it is, first and foremost, I think a, a good uh, <coughs> thumb is to um, not be showing off your, uh, your garments, right? So long as those are covered, that's generally a good rule of thumb of for, for modesty. Um, and, and yeah, I think, you know, there, there are some things that personally I'm not a huge fan of is such as super skin tight clothes or, or whatever. But um, I, I think the general rule would be, you know, would you feel comfortable in the presence of the Lord wearing what you're wearing? Yeah, I, I like that. That's a great start for it. And intention goes a long ways, cultural standards that you're, you know, brought up and go a long ways. And um, I think it's important to note that standards of modesty have changed and will change um, throughout cultures and time. And sometimes those changes, I think, are influenced uh, by maybe environmental factors. You know, like in the, the Polynesian islands, it's more common for natives of that island to wear less. And, uh, you know, super white people that <laughs> come from some of the, uh, like, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess like Europe, Northern Europe areas, um, especially Switzerland and Finland and all those places, you know, you're going to wear a lot more because the the environment you're in demands wearing more clothes to stay warm. Um, and then there are a lot of other factors that can play into it. Um, and the culture you're brought up in, I think, really sets a tone of the standard of, of dress. And I know some people kind of use that to say that the, the standards of modesty then are subjective. And yes, they are somewhat subjective. They can change. But I think the intention behind what you're wearing um, is kind of baselined by your cultural upbringing. You know, like, I don't think it's possible for someone who grows up in a culture that is very conservative in dress, like, you know, let's say someone from the pioneer era, for someone like that 
to wear like a, a string bikini in public and feel comfortable and feel like they are, you know, expressing themselves in a fine way that's, that's modest and respectful to their body. No, I, I certainly don't think so. Yet someone in, you know, a certain culture, like I mentioned, the Polynesian islands may wear something equivalent to the string bikini or maybe a little more, but um, you know, and they have no intention of exploiting their sexual um, you know, um, influences. And I think that's a big, big deal. Um, that's really what it comes down to, I think, is what sign are you giving? You know, are you trying to exploit the sexual influence, or, you know, of attraction that you have in your body? Are you trying to exploit your body for that power and influence? Um, or are you trying to show respect? Um, and, and again, I know this, this does sway in culture. In our culture right now, the standards are different than they were 100 years ago. You know, you might offend your grandma um, today by wearing something that in you know, for all reasonable standards are, is quite acceptable today. That doesn't necessarily make it right, but I, I think those are some influences to take into account. Absolutely. And uh, I, I agree hundred percent with that. It, it is an interesting kind of uh, dichotomy there though, that you do have almost this very, what seems to be subjective nature to it, right? Or there's cultural or traditional standards that are basically set for you, right? Just like you mentioned, you go back, you know, 100, 150 years ago, the standards were very, very different. I mean, you go back 40, 30, 40 years, and uh, they've changed drastically over that time period as well, uh, just in, you know, Utah area. And uh, I don't know, I think I think that there is some danger of, of following that path where you continue to almost uh, set it on the subjective nature of society standards, right? Um just, just because the world standards continue to drop and drop and drop does not necessarily mean that modesty should follow along those same trends. Although I would say to some degree, it does seem as though the general standard rule um, does somewhat follow that line uh, very minimally, but it but does tend to uh, follow the cultural and traditional standards of the day. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it is extremes where um, you could be in danger. And right, one extreme is following that subjective line and just saying, you know, it's, it's subjective. And I don't feel like this is modest. If someone can't handle being around me, that's their problem. And that's not necessarily true. You know, you, you have to show respect. And yeah, if someone else, you know, is dealing with lust, and they're lusting after you, that is their problem. That's their sin. But if you're provoking them, you have to take some accountability for that. Um, and I, and then on the other side, you know, you could you could maybe un um, wrongfully condemn others that come from cultures where, um, you know, the standards are just different. Like we come from pioneer heritage where clothing is very conservative. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as modesty goes. Um, but you can look to some more primitive or first world cultures, you know, in Africa and stuff where women don't even wear shirts. And they're not, you know, they're not trying to be, <laughs> it's not, um, it's not like that's their standard in such a provocative way. You know, they're not trying to be sexually provocative at all. Um, while in our culture, you know, we really accentuate parts of the body that makes it intentionally provocative. And I think that difference is very significant. You know, you can be wearing more while really wrongfully exploiting the sexual uh, provocative nature, you know, of our bodies in a way that is, I think, abusive to that power. And then, you know, other people from another culture might be wearing less, but not having that intention to, um, you know, exploit that, that power. 
And so, yeah, it's I'm trying to strike a little bit of a balance here, but I think really what you said at first, Cade, the, um, the intention's an important thing and um, garments is a good rule. I mean, garments have even changed since they were first introduced, right? They used to be like <laughs> down to your, your ankles. And your, shirts. Your yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, you know, they, they do change a little, but I think that's a, that's a pretty good marker for where we should be. And, you know, they're popular influencers on social media that will try to sway members to, you know, you don't have to or whatever. You just do what you feel, you feel is comfortable. And no, that, that goes against our covenant. You're supposed to wear the garment garment at, at all times, wherever possible, you know, and you, unless there's a, you know, a very significant reason why you can't do it. Um, so anyway, you know, there's, there's the guidance we have there. Look what's there. Look in the handbook, look in the, in the guidelines that we have published and what, what the leaders have said there. Absolutely. I think that's a great way to kind of round it off. I, I, I always worry that I go out and try to make like a law of Moses where, you know, you have to draw the lines on your body, you know, don't, don't show your shoulders or, you know, don't show your kneecaps or what, you know, whatever it might be. But I, I do think a general rule is, yeah, follow, follow the, the standards of what, what your garments are, follow a comfortable standard where you would genuinely be comfortable, you know, in the presence of God, right? I mean, the, the honest truth is that does change depending on where you're at and the, the standards that you've grown up on. And I don't think that there necessarily ought to be a law of Moses rule, you know, that there's a two inch gap from your knee to your your shorts or whatever it is. But but I do agree. A lot of it comes down to the intentions you have and kind of the direction that you've been raised in the culture that you uh, are raised in as well. Right. So, Kate, I want to ask you a question on this. Does modesty apply only to women or more to women than it does to men? No. <laughs> no, it, it, it seems to in, in certain ways and traditionally. Um, but uh, it's just as important to men as it is to women. Definitely. That's interesting. I, you know, I'm going to take another stance. I'm going to say it does apply more to women. But I've got okay. to qualify this. Well, listen. Um, first off, because I know, and this is a... This is an unfortunate thing, but I know some women feel burdened by this seemingly greater responsibility. Like it's all on them, you know, like if you don't dress modest, these guys won't be able to control themselves, you know, and it'll be your fault. Like, oh, that's it. That's a horrible um, way to frame this. this like <laughs> as if it all rests on them. And if the, you know, <laughs> morality of mankind or uh, of men in general as males um, is degraded, you know, and they lust as if it's her fault, you know, no, that's, that's not the way it works. Um, I think as men, we need to take accountability for our actions. And, um, you know, <laughs> as Christ said, if you look after a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Um, but at the same time, I think that women and men are fundamentally different in many ways. Um, I think women have a beauty about them that men don't have to the same degree. Um, you know, it's no wonder why in I our, don't know. Now, nowadays those things are changing, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There, there are quite a few differences you could, you could point out in modern culture on this oh, whole conversation, but, uh, sticking to where, where we're coming from, um, women, you know, the feminine beauty, I think is something that is grander. It is, it is something to be admired. Um, not as often do you see men being admired for their bodies in, in artwork throughout cultures, you know, in the past. 
um, in most architecture and artwork, and some of this, you know, I don't agree with when they're when they're painting tons of nude people walking around, but you see the wo um, woman's body admired more. I think the beauty is more apparent. And um, that's, I think, a, a beautiful God-given um, trait. So I, I hope that the modesty discussion never turns into something that makes women feel burdened by their body, you know, and feeling almost like they have to cover up their body as if it's a bad thing. No, that's certainly not the case. It is a beautiful, wonderful thing. It's something that because of that beauty and that sacredness um, ought to be respected and be, you know, given its proper respect. But I do think um, women have a different um, take or I guess a different responsibility or way they would react to modesty than men do. Now, this doesn't mean the standards all out the window for men and they can wear whatever they want. And, you know, there's no way to be provocative or exploit the sexual powers they have. That certainly can happen, too. But I think it's a little different, you know, like uh, men, you know, not wearing a shirt is not the same as women not wearing a shirt. So there's one major difference with modesty. That, that That's a fair point. That's uh, kind of the only direction I could have seen that going a little bit. But I do agree. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's. In my mind, I see it as a little bit closer in terms of importance for both men and for women, just in the general sense that if you're exploiting yourself to basically sexually arouse others or um, kind of just ex essentially exploit your body to some degree, right, whether it's visually or, or even beyond that, I, I think that that's a very dangerous path to tread. Um, and I think that while I do agree that I uh, generally, yeah, women are much, much more beautiful than men. And maybe that's because I am a man. Is that because <laughs> I, you're I, heterosexual? It, 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 it probably is. <laughs> but, but I don't know. I, I think that uh, when, when it does come down to it, the, the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, both men and women, for the most part, generally are attracted to each other. And the exploitation of your body in that sense, just to go about based off the style of clothing that you wear or the lack thereof, um, can really affect either sex in the same drastic ways um, and not like like you had mentioned earlier not that it's your fault that they're lusting after you but um, but there is some personal accountability that does need to be taken as well yeah yeah you get those like I don't know high school girls that you know act like oh those pigs looking at me and it's like well look what you're wearing you're, you're dressed like a prostitute you know what do you expect and, and so you know there's that side of it um, but again men need to be responsible for their actions but women and men alike, we can provoke. You got to recognize your power to provoke. That that uh, that is a big deal. Um, even Christ said, you know, when does he say like? Is it when he's in? It's in what part is it? When he says you might provoke your neighbor to sin if you like don't. What part am I thinking of when you're like angry with your neighbor? Let me see if I can find it real fast. Um, you might cause your neighbor. Let's see. Okay, I think I found it. Yes, here we go. Okay, so, and I would, this is in, let's see, where is this? I think it's in Mosiah chapter four. Here we go. And I would that ye should remember that whosoever among you borroweth of his neighbor should return the thing that he borroweth according as he doth agree, or else thou shalt commit sin and perhaps thou shalt cause thy neighbor to commit sin also. So 
you may cause others to sin, or I would say maybe influence them to sin. Uh, you may not be responsible for, you know, their sin, like, uh, but, but you do have some degree of accountability for how you're influencing people and leading them to, to, you know, maybe react in a certain way when ultimately it's their decision. But anyway. No, absolutely. And and I think, you know, an an interesting kind of addition to that is, I mean, if, if you look at just sin in general, we are never, ever forced to sin. It's always a choice, but we are constantly influenced by, you know, essentially uh, the, the devil and uh, his influences, right? And so when we start participating in that same sort of fashion to some degree or another, that's not a good path to tread down. Yeah, agreed. Um, well, I think last thing I'll say on that is... Um, you know, the way you treat yourself and present your body, I think, sends a sign to um, how people ought to treat you, you and your body. Um, you know, when you're, when you're dating, especially, keep this in mind. If you dress in a respectable way that, that respects your body, I think that will send a sign that people who are dating you, you know, hold that standard, too. Um, it has some influence, at least. But anyway, I know there's lots here and some people might get offended that, you know, we, we didn't hit hard enough on something or maybe they misunderstood something and felt like we were misrepresenting it. If so, you know, send in your thoughts. Uh, maybe we can round it out again. Um, I think there's certainly more to be said in this discussion, but uh, yeah, it, it went a lot longer than we thought. We thought when we planned <laughs> this question, like, well, that'll be short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think that's pretty well rounded. I'll, I'll move into the next question to ask you. Um, and so this next question for you is, faith in God? Is it reasonable? All right. Yes, this is a, this is a great question. So I remember watching a debate once on this, um, some atheist versus a Christian. I think the Christian was William Lane Craig. He's a really popular Christian apologetics, uh, debater. Uh, he's, he's a really good, good one to watch. Um, but yeah, on this topic is faith reasonable. Um, specifically is, is a Christian faith reasonable? Um, it's an interesting question because on one hand, you have a lot of verses uh, in scripture where Christ is saying, you know, like condemning sign seekers and saying that, you know, you're blessed to believe on, on the spiritual signs, like on the gift of, you know, the Holy Ghost, the witness of the Holy Ghost, which doesn't seem empirical. You know, everyone else can't observe that witness coming to you. And so it's a different game where you, you don't really approach faith in the same exact way as you do um, other things through the scientific method, where you're using merely empirical methods to, to derive your conclusion. You know, you can't see, feel, touch, um, sense, you know, with your, your physical perceptions, you cannot conclusively um, come to the knowledge of God. I think you have to rely on the supernatural to some degree to sway your belief. And so that's where this question comes in. Well, is that reasonable? You know, is it, can you really be convicted based on rationale? So to answer that, I would say, I'm going to, I'm going to answer simply at first and hear what you have to say, Cade. I would say, yes, it is rational. Um, I believe that the power of God witnessing through the spirit is a legitimate method of receiving truth. Um, so when you receive a witness from God, you're the only one, this is an individual experience who, who recognizes that sign and may sense it. Others are not feeling the things you're feeling in your heart or in your mind or in your body. And that experience, um, is personal to you, but that is legitimate experience. And I think you have to take that into account and, you know, the circumstances you're in, and that can be deemed, um, 
productive to producing some rational thought or rational thought or conclusion. So I think, yes, it is, it is reasonable, um, but that'll have to be rounded out. But I want to hear what you have to say uh, on, on your side, Cade. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, an interesting uh, kind of dilemma that you have, right? I mean, logically, you need to base everything, like you said, on empirical evidence, especially things pertaining to matters of you know eternal weight and gravity. Um, and, I, and I think that's where it becomes very difficult is um, just like you said, God's word, God's gospel, everything from true, real revealed religion must come from that revealed source. Um, and, and the hard part about that is, you know, like, for example, I can go and I can read about Lehi having visions or, or Joseph Smith having visions or, or whatever it might be. But to a real sense, you can never actually prove that they really had that. You could prove that they wrote about it or they might have some interesting things to say about it. But to truly empirically say he had a vision because he wrote it down does not actually put any true weight on it. Right. Um, and, and I think that's a real difficulty when you start getting into the realms of, of religion. And so what I think it really comes down to, like I've, I've probably said many, many times before, is, is personal spiritual experiences. But the hard part about this and, and the, the ability to call it a reasonable method of obtaining this truth is, first and foremost, it has to be very real. Um, that, that faith, and I think Christ touches on this pretty well to a, to a degree, and when he talks about having faith as the grain of the mustard seed, that I, I don't think, it, I mean, sure, you know, to some degree, he's talking about the size, but I think to some degree as well, it's a real substantial thing that though it's not measured empirically in the sense that we're used to measuring things by, by feet and inches, by feel, by taste, by smell, by, you know, your, your basic five senses, or even by any other sort of uh, mechanisms that we've devised up to this point, right? You don't pull out your, um, your uh what do you call them uh, basically your scientific tools that we've discovered to try to measure the the validity and power of, of revelations or of of the power of the spirit but i think when it's very real to you that's the only way you can really know there, there are some things that um i don't know I, I don't think that we've really figured out how to measure nor do i anticipate that we ever will through scientific methods yeah yeah i mean there's no conflict between true science and true religion, right? And I think if you had all the true science, it would indicate that there is a God. I think that that is a, a fact, you know, in our reality. And so um, naturally, there will be indicators of it. And that fact would be manifest if you had all the clues. But I think God set it up um, purposely so that you, you will not have enough facts to know by fact alone. You will, you'll not know by um, science alone that he is God. And I think that's purposely um, because the nature of the environment that God has set in this um, plan of salvation for us during this mortal probation is such that we have to rely on faith to some degree. Now, I think there is a place for the scientific or academic intellectualism, right? The, the environment that can be set up there. You know, we, we can search out through those means and those methods to produce a circumstance where there is place for faith. I think if you're at a place where um, from an intellectual standpoint, it is just totally implausible that God exists or, or that, you know, like let's say the Book of Mormon is true. If intellectually your mind is hindered from believing that, I think it would hinder the, 
ability for you to believe on it, even when the witness does, uh, or the spirit does witness to you. And that's to some degree. I think sometimes the spirit of, you know, of God can um, confound, you know, the, the <laughs> sophistries of men. But I think being intellectually converted pro- provides an atmosphere where you can then give place for the seed to be planted in your heart. So I think there is a place for it, but it can't give you everything. And the, the story that comes to my mind is Doubting Thomas, one of the 12 apostles. Um, after Christ was resurrected and he appeared to some of his apostles, um, some of the apostles told Thomas, and Thomas had not seen Jesus. And so he doubted. Um, they said, I'll read it here. It says, the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, except I see, shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord, my God. Um, And then I think the important distinction Jesus makes here, noting on this experience is he said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus is making this distinction, like it is a virtue to be able to believe without seeing. Now, uh, I guess there's the difference here, though, that some Christians, and I don't know if you have noticed this, Kate, or if you think this, but I think some Christians believe it is actually a virtue to be gullible and just to believe without any evidence or without, you know, because he said, believe without seeing, you know, oh, I have no evidence. I don't, it seems ridiculous to believe in Christ, but I'll do it anyway. Do you think that's virtuous? No, it is not. It is foolish. <laughs> yeah, I um, agree. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I, I don't know. I, I think um, maybe taking a little bit of a different track, going back to, I mean, you, you've discussed kind of this um, world that, that God has set up for us, right? Where um, in reality, you have to rely on on faith. You have to rely on this belief, which doesn't really have these tangibles that you would often expect to go along with it, right? And so I, I guess I'd ask you the question, um, is is that a reasonable method? and And why would that be? Yeah, I guess um, to some degree, it kind of comes down to how we're defining words and stuff, because um, I think the scientific method relies on empirical evidence. You know, your five senses, um, you know, it has to be something that's reproducible, too. Um, You know, we're we're used to the Bible of intellectualism is like on Google Scholar. You have published peer reviewed articles that show experiments or research that is um, observable and reproducible. And a personal experience that you have that's subjective and individual is not reproducible and others cannot perceive it with their senses, you can only do it. And you, you're the one that feels it. So I think in an individual sense, I would call it rational, but for a collective uh, body of people, um, I don't know. I, I don't think I would call it rational to the same degree that maybe they're thinking of. So I, I guess it's how we're defining it. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. I think that this is a, a very interesting topic. I feel like we could probably delve into this for a, a solid amount of time. But yeah. um, even in just like a, a grand scheme of, of how God has set up this plan, um, is it really reasonable for this faith, for, for most Christian religions to go out and say, well, you know, 
I mean, whether it's to the degree that you, you kind of touched on earlier, where it's like, well, I guess I'm kind of a gullible sense of faith where I don't need any evidence at all. I don't need any sort of anything to back up my, my claims and my beliefs. And I don't know, I think it, it's really interesting the way that God has set up this plan, right? That that it would require this lack of, of what we would call realistically kind of empirical evidence where it's, like you said, uh, duplicable, where, you know, John can go out and do the same thing. And I think to some degree that does happen, but, but it's not always to the degree that we um, would expect in scientific fields. Um, but I, I don't know. I think in, in most Christian sects, I don't think that it is as reasonable as we make it out to be. Just in the sense that um, to live a life based off of no evidence, right? I mean, for, for, for the majority of Christian religions, revelation is not a thing. Um, so your entire quote-unquote empirical evidence is essentially based on, you know, some old pages that some old guys wrote a couple thousand years ago. Um, and for the sole purpose so that you can, you know, essentially go out and declare that Jesus is the Christ for some short years and go and fan him with some fig leaves for all of eternity. Um, and I, I don't know. I think that that kind of a faith seems unreasonable to me. It really does um, because there's no reason for it, right? I mean, what, what what's the whole point to have this this vast and, you know, almost mysterious faith based off of very, very little, if any, what you would call evidence, only so that you can kind of continue to just pray for eternity and sing songs, I guess. I don't know. For me, that would seem very unreasonable. And so that's why I think the the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so critical to add a, at least a, another layer uh, or or 18 or a thousand layers of, of this reason to this faith in God, right? That that this faith truly helps us progress in a, in a way that we understand and, and we learn and we perfect ourselves through the grace of Jesus Christ. So that eventually this faith becomes this innate power um, and we become, in a real sense, omnipotent. And then we're able to progress through, you know, degrees of glory to a real extent, thus adding, in my opinion, much, much, much more reason on having faith in God. Yeah. Oh, man, you made it such a good point um, in in kind of juxtaposing us with other faiths, like um, even Christian faiths, like Protestantism. Um, that's a good comparison I forgot about. But in Protestantism, and some members of the church, you might not realize this, but our um, belief that we can have individual revelation um, from God through the Holy Ghost, that is not something that is in all Christianities. Uh, many Protestants believe in sola scriptura. They believe that the, the Bible is the only um, word of God and that it is infallible, meaning that at least on the important parts of uh, the Bible, which is kind of an arbitrary distinction they make here. They say it's infallible in the way it communicates to you. So no one can misunderstand it. And if anyone does misunderstand it, they're intentionally misunderstanding it um, because they're evil, I guess, or immoral. <laughs> it's a really weird thought. But anyway, and so they say that um, this communicates this communicates the truth to our soul and we don't have the ability to personally receive the revelation through the Holy Ghost and have any other witness. Um, the Bible is the only witness and the only source of truth. Um, so that is, that is actually a stance many people take, you know, Calvinism and many, um, sects of Protestantism. And so, okay, drawing that distinction, that's a, that's a huge deal. But yeah, I think if you're going from that angle, the question of whether, um, you know, Christianity is reasonable, faith in Christianity is reasonable. That's a whole different topic. And I think, I think William Lane Craig in the debate that I watched, and I can't remember whom he was debating, 
Um, I think he was taking this route and he used for his evidence that it's reasonable um, the testimony of the 12 apostles from the Bible. <laughs> and the atheist who was debating him just blew up that argument. He's like, well, what about Mormons? They have witnesses for the Book of Mormon. And William Lane Craig is like, oh, uh, well, well, <laughs> you know, because, you know, he doesn't believe in us. <laughs> but so it kind of is kind of a double edged sword there. But anyway, so, yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's interesting that we have the, the witness of the Holy Ghost. And that's a big deal. Um, just from my experience, I'm, I'm just going to end my thoughts on this one by saying I believe that the, um, I have my faith and I feel like I am compelled by reason based on my experiences. Anyone who has been in my circumstances, who has had the experiences that I've had, the witnesses I've had, and has put forth the efforts that have been um, reciprocated by God's witnesses to me and uh, certain miracles and things that have happened, I think it's only reasonable to believe. Anyone in my circumstance, I think, would believe. And so I think that can happen to anyone. In a sense, it is reproducible, but you got to do it on an individual basis, and only you will get those signs probably. Um, but if you follow the model, like the one Alma pr proposes, you know, plant a seed in your heart, try it out, see if it's good. I believe that as I've applied the um, principles from the Book of Mormon and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it is very, very good fruit. Um, one that I think can only be from God, and it has only brought light and truth and goodness to my life. Um, there's just virtue emanating from all these, all these principles and uh, doctrines and scriptures that we have. So that's, that's my conclusion on, on this note, unless you had um, any other ones you wanted me to answer, Kate, but I'll, I'll give you the last word on this topic. No, absolutely. I love that. And I, I think that's very, very well put. Um, that, absolutely. And, and that's, that's the hard part about it. I think that the, the reason does come down to an individual basis. Um, and, that, and that's part of the beauty of it too, you know, that you're not going to be damned for someone else's knowledge or, or experiences or lack thereof. Um, but it really does come down to an individual factor in a real sense. Um, and, and you can kind of see this throughout scripture to, to a high degree when, you know, Christ goes and talks about, well, you know, whoever puts their mother or father or brother or sister before me is, it's not fit for the kingdom, right? Whoever, you know, whatever. Um, I, I, I think in a real way that, um, you know, when you, when you go out and, and you start comparing yourself to other people's experiences, when you really start saying, well, you know, I don't necessarily know what he knows or whatever that's not the way to go about it. You, I think if you go about this reasonable belief in the way that the scriptures outline, just like you, you said, where, um, where you actually test this in a real sense and you start to enjoy those experiences because the, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that that, that is true. And, be, and because of that, and, and not solely because of that, it is more than reasonable. It's almost unreasonable not to believe. Um, especially the, the more you test the word of God, right? When you do, yeah, but you got to test it, right? You, you're putting in effort and God is responding and giving exactly. you evidence, even if it's spiritual evidence. Exactly. And, and that's the hard thing about it is that uh, these evidences that you get are, are not necessarily shared with others. On occasion, they are. Um, but I think more often than not, they are given on an individual basis. And so that's, that's the, uh, the challenge to, to take is, well, can, can I build my faith in God and, and receive the witnesses for myself and obtain those gifts from heaven? And then once you do to continue in faith and use them. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think that's, that's good. Um, prescriptive advice um, on that question. So 
Cool. Well, yeah, that, that discussion could go on much deeper and much longer, but I like what we said there. Um, we've, we've definitely stirred the waters in that uh, realm. So if anyone has any suggestions or thoughts or um, specific aspects of that discussion that you'd like to hear us talk more about, uh, feel free to articulate them in a question, formulate it and send it to us. Um, well, Kay, do you want to move on to the next topic? Um, I ask you this one, right? Yeah, Red Rover, Red Rover, send her on over. All right. She comes by the name of Tithing, question mark. Ah, That's a question. All right. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, <laughs> That's I don't it. know where to go with that, but let's see. Um, tithing? I don't know. <laughs> tithing? Huh. No, I, I, I think, I, I don't know. I think that tithing is a very important principle. Um, I, I know it's tithing settlement or declaration season as uh, Mike has so kindly reminded me. Uh, <laughs> um, but it really is an important principle. And I don't know, I had a, a, a awesome and really great discussion with one of my friends and um, long story short, one of my, my biggest takeaway with this discussion with him was a, a quote that he said, and, and it was tithing, what a bargain. And uh, it, it really is such a blessing, you know, I, I don't think we understand this to the degree that we ought to um, because it, it's a hard thing, right? I mean, finances, especially, you know, inflation rates rising high, you know, the world being crazy and, and, you know, all the sorts of difficulties that arise in, in the world. I think that tithing is such an important and key aspect of the gospel that we ought to continue to enjoy um, and, and reap the blessings from it. Um and, and that's kind of just where I'll start it off and I'll, I'll head it over to you and kind of see where we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a principle that's been around in some form, you know, for forever. The, the principles behind it, I believe are obedience and sacrifice. And like you, Kate, I, I feel like it is a bargain in a way. Um, I know that sounds kind of cheesy, um, but, but yeah, as far as in my life as I have, you know, uh, followed this law of tithing. I, I feel like it has, um, I, I've been taken care of and I have had many blessings that have been personal and, um, directly tied to, you know, paying tithing. Um, my wife and I have had those and, and they've definitely been apparent to us looking back. Sometimes we'd see them and sometimes it was right in the moment. Um, you know, when we're really poor college students and paying tithing was tough, but, um, yeah, I, I've had some experiences that are really cool with it. And uh, my dad, um, I, so my, my parents were divorced. So I have a stepdad and a dad. My stepdad, um, he has a really cool experience. He, so he's a convert. He was baptized when he was about 21, I think. And I think he said he was in college and struggling to, to make some payments. And, and he was kind of, he, he kind of uh, ran into this dilemma where he knew he could either pay tithing or, you know, pay whatever bill he had to, whether it was rent or school tuition or something. And this was when he was first baptized. So he's still, you know, kind of testing, you know, like, all right, am I ready to accept this? This is a new thing. I have, I'm not used to giving away 10% of my income, um, but he did it. And, you know, he, he thought he would face the the dilemma and the conflict, but he ended up getting a, a miracle where I think the school had made a mistake in counting the amounts of what was due and sent him back some reimbursement check that accounted for more than the amount of tithing he'd paid and things worked out, but it came the, I think like the day after he paid tithing. Um, 
but you can hear many of these stories, you know, from other people who have gone through these things that are in very meager circumstances, or you can have them in your own life. Um, but I definitely believe this is a principle that is true and God wants to bless us. And if you pay tithing, um, you be ready to see miracles. I don't want to pose it in a way that makes it sound like, um, you know, this is like, oh, like I'm Dave Ramsey and like, you want to make millions, pay tithing more and more. You know, it's, it's not like get rich quick. <laughs> yeah, don't get rich quick scheme, but I believe it's a true principle and things will work out. God will take care of you and you will see the windows of heaven open to you and have more blessings than you have room to receive. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in a real way, even if, um, I don't know, I, I personally love, you know, the blessing uh, in Malachi where, you know, the windows of heaven will be opened unto you. Um, and and I, I really like how vague it is. I mean, because that is a very vague promise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but I, 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 the reason I like how vague that is, is in a real way, every single one of us have different circumstances and needs. Um, but in my experience, I've not met one person in my life so far and i'm sure i don't know if there are out there but to my experience of my short 23 years i have yet to meet someone who is a faithful member that is paying their tithing that is not able to get by that is not living somewhat comfortably and um, that truly enjoys blessings that i think often money cannot and does not buy yeah i i believe that and um, i mean some of that may be true just because we're living in the United States, you know, it's like <laughs> even the the lowest of the poverty level, you know, you're still going to survive. You're not going to starve to death. Um, I, I mean, some people are in very dire circumstances. I don't mean to make light of it, but we're in a very prosperous nation is my point. And, you know, people from past generations, you read the stories of the pioneers and what they gave up. And it just puts, you know, the greatest sacrifices we could make financially to shame. You know, they, they literally gave up every single thing multiple times in many cases. <laughs> and you read their stories and the sacrifice they had, and it was worth it, you know, and their well-being, uh, you know, in many cases was so good. I think in so many ways they, they were so blessed. And even though their circumstances were so meager and um, in many cases they were starving, you know, and struggling uh, very much, but they, they'll testify themselves of the blessings that come from it. So, you know, if, if you want to do a science experiment, we were just talking about the scientific method and stuff, test God. Um, I know it's kind of weird because, you know, he says like, is, you know, condemn sign seeking. But in a way, um, he also asks us to test him. You know, he's saying like, prove me now herewith. That, that is saying, test me and follow the principle with good intention, with, with uh, you know, a good heart and a sincere heart. And I believe that you will experience miracles and have a witness for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's one of the key principles, obviously, in the gospel is the, the principle of sacrifice, which tithing portrays very well, especially nowadays. I don't know. I think that if there's a hard thing to sacrifice, especially today, it's money. That is a very difficult thing. I per, Right now I'm working in the financial industry and people are very protective of every single cent that they have. And that's not an easy thing to, to especially 10%, which is not a, a small portion on top of, you know, whatever taxes you're paying. Um, and I don't know, I, I think that the biggest blessing that there is out there um, is, is going out and testing this to, to grow your faith, to become um, more in tune with God in a real way, right? To, to have this promised blessing from the for, you know, the being who goes and creates the entire universe and organizes it all, you know, the one who, you know, parted the Red Sea for Moses and moved mountains for the brother of Jared. And he says, hey, if you pay 
10% of your tithing, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that you won't even have room to receive it. Um, now that is a promise. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good stuff. Um, man, I would, I would like to talk even about fast offerings too, but I think we should keep that for a separate question. Cause that's goes into a lot of different stuff, but that's a great topic too. Um, fast offerings and also, you know, giving to the poor and all that topic, but we'll save that for another time. If you, if you're okay with that, Cade. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I guess for, for me, I guess that's pretty much all I have for now on tithing. If you want to move on to the next one. Okay. Yeah, let's go. Okay. All right. We're going to open a whole nother uh, direction over here. So the question for you, Mike, is are there any literal descendants of Aaron? And if so, would they claim the right to the bishopric as uh, written in Doctrine and Covenants section 68? Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have to do blood tests and i i'm sure there are literal descendants of aaron uh, somewhere in existence <laughs> but in in doctrine and covenants section 68 it does say um let's see it's talking about the presiding bishopric in the church and it says wherefore they shall be high priests who are worthy and they shall be appointed by the first presidency of the melchizedek priesthood except they be literal descendants of aaron and if they be literal descendants of aaron they have a legal right to the bishopric if they are the firstborn among the sons of Aaron. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I remember reading this when I was like a teenager. I'm like, wait, so <laughs> some like descendant of Aaron could just go and, you know, push the presiding bishopric out of their seats and say, I have the right to the throne and sit on there. You know, it's like, is that how it works? Um, and, and then it also um, kind of touches on the, the topic of when bishops are called to be bishops, they have to be, um, ordained a high priest only because they not being literal descendants of Aaron don't have the right to be in that calling unless they're in the um, ordained a high priest who can, you know, fill that calling as well as other ones. So you have to be at that office in order to, um, cause the high office of high priest subsumes all of the lower ones, including Bishop um, from my understanding, at least. But if you were a literal descendant of Aaron, you wouldn't have to be set apart as a high priest, from my understanding, in order to be a bishop. So, so this is an, about yeah, what I know. So, yeah. So this is this is an interesting topic. And uh, some years ago, I went and I mean, I, I was very interested in this. Uh, let me actually get a quote pulled up real quick that I found. Uh, I believe it was Joseph Fielding Smith, but he he says, let me see where it is. He says this. He says, if the rightful heir to the to this office could prove the same, um, he could claim under his anointing under the hands of the first presidency of the church. Today, we are under the necessity of having high priests act as bishops in the church, in all local offices, as well as presiding offices in the priesthood. Uh, the direct descendants of Aaron could act without counselors, uh, but unless they were also high priests, they could not serve as bishops in the same capacity and authority as do bishops of the present order who are high priests. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll continue just with one quick sentence from Robert G. Matthews. Um, but he, he, he kind of continues a similar line of thought, but he says that we have in the church today people whose patriarchal blessings designate them as Levites and some who are even designated as of the family of Aaron. But the Lord has not seen fit to call them into the presiding bishopric or any presiding office. This is probably because the time is not right. And that's as 
as close as I found this. It's it's probably <laughs> not the right time. <laughs> Some people have that in their patriarchal blessing. Wow. And did I hear you right that you said when you were reading it um in the first quote, mm-hmm. it said if you were a literal descendant of Aaron, you wouldn't even need counselors. But then it said like, but you wouldn't be able to serve like other bishops do. So I was a little confused at that part. It seemed like it was saying two contradictory things. Right. So um, basically what he outlines is, and, and it's outlined also in the, uh, in DNC uh, 68, um, that basically these descendants of Aaron um, will go and they'll be able to be anointed, right? If, if they can prove their lineage um, by the first presidency. Um, and as such, because they are of the lineage of Aaron, they don't need counselors. They are the only people supposedly that I have been able to find that will not need counselors to serve under them. Um, and he does continue to say that they won't serve in the exact same capacity as do bishops today. And this, this doesn't uh, also, this does not stem specifically to local bishops, but also to uh, the presiding bishopric as well. I would continue to add. Wait, say that last part again. It extends to what? So this is not just for the local office of bishop, but also for the presiding bishop of the church. Yeah, okay. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. And I I didn't know anyone's patriarchal blessing would call them out under the lineage of a son of Aaron, like um, Aaronic descendant. So let me get this straight. So Aaron, I mean, he's not one of the 12 tribes in him in and of himself so i thought when you got your patriarchal so, blessing so aaron aaron is the he, brother of of moses and moses was a levite so i assume aaron was also a levite right yeah. and uh, if you go through in the old testament it kind of is briefly distinguishes the sons of aaron and the levites particularly where the sons of aaron while they were levites that they did not um, hold the exact same authority as did the Levites. They held a slightly higher authority. Um, and I, I forget all the, the, the distinctions between the two, but they did have uh, a slightly different authority than the uh, Levites, a slightly higher authority, I should say. Okay. So I guess that would be um, calling them Levites of the tribe of, tribe of Levi, uh, but also through Aaron. I mean, I guess in addition. Uh-huh. So, okay, that makes sense. It's just odd that, uh, you know, the patriarchal blessing would do that. Because I know they establish typically the, the tribe that you're from, but usually mm-hmm. it doesn't go into any of the descendants of that tribe and specify, you know, even more so. But I guess with yeah. Aaron holding that, you know, his sons holding that higher office um, to administer in certain rights and stuff, that, right. that would make sense. Right. And so I, I think part of this comes down to, I don't remember the exact specifics of early church history for the presiding bishopric, because this is specifically what it's outlining is the, the presiding bishop, right? Um, but um, the, the, the fact is that since the restoration, so far as I've known, it's been members who hold Melchizedek priesthood rather than uh, specifically going to find a, a descendant of Aaron. And let me, let me see if I can find, I have one more quote. Um, um okay so here's one by elder mcconkey um my my man Uh, but he says from aaron uh, to the coming of john the baptist the high priest in israel served in the presiding offices of the aaronic order because they were descendants of aaron the office of the presiding bishop in the church today is comparable hereditary nature Uh, although the lord has not so far designated the lineage in which the right of such offices rests the right to hold the Levitical priesthood anciently was limited to the sons of Levi, who thus gained their priesthood pr- 
prerogatives by birth. In the meridian of time, our Lord has altered the system and spread this ironic order and authority among worthy males in the church generally. Um, and Harold, Harold Bailey, I'll, I'll give one last, this is a partial quote, but he says, um, after kind of talking about some of this, he says, now you just go back home and wait until the first presidency of the church sends for you. And then if he ever does send for you, you won't have to have counselors to, to be the presiding bishop of the church, is what he says. So um, I, I think that's an important distinction that it's not necessarily any, you know, Joe Schmo from the streets. that's like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm a descendant of Aaron, so I want to want to be the presiding bishop. And, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. But I think it's important that the distinctions made in scriptures or else they wouldn't have made it right. Like uh, yeah. on one hand, it's like they, they're making this distinction and it doesn't mean that, um, you know, just necessarily if you're um, a descendant of Aaron and it specifies that in your patriarchal blessing, or you could prove it. It doesn't mean you have, um, just automatically have right to overtake any bishopric and be the bishop, but it means that if you were called to a bishop in that case, your circumstance would be a little different and you wouldn't need counselors or whatever. Right, because you have a hereditary right that's been passed on through your blood. Okay, so that's, yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure the distinction is made in scriptures for good reason, and I don't think the good reason has been um, totally manifest at this point. And, you know, additionally, you have in section 84 and elsewhere where it says the sons of Moses and also of Aaron shall offer an acceptable offering and sacrifice in the house of the Lord, which house shall be built unto the Lord in this generation upon the consecrated spot I've appointed, which uh, mm -hmm. was said more than a generation ago. But whatever. <laughs> 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 yes, we can have that on another topic. <laughs> sons no. of Aaron, hurry and go to that sacrifice. <laughs> we need to get done. <laughs> And, and that, that's actually exactly where I was going to head is I, I, I anticipate this uh, specific because it is somewhat of a, a rare passage, right? I mean, I never heard about this until maybe, what, like four or five years ago. Um, but as soon as I did, I thought it was really rare because I'd never heard anything about it before. Um, but, but I do anticipate, like you said, this to be something coming in the coming days closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Well, that's a that's a kind of mysterious topic because we don't know everything on it, and especially the one about like this generation. You know, maybe we could dig into that more. I haven't studied that one a ton, so uh, that would be fun to talk about more. But yeah, this this stuff's cool because I I know there's a reason why it was brought up here, and I think we've yet to see the the full reason. Absolutely, absolutely. I think. Um... You know, my, probably my favorite part of all these quotes was, well, th this is probably because the time is not right. And um, I don't know. I think that, there, that, that that's kind of the beautiful thing is there are things that are revealed line upon line. But we have a, an interesting foundation to build off on that one. We just haven't had very many lines added upon since. Yeah. And yeah, I, I love when a, a prophet says probably, you know, like when you're hearing some speculation of a prophet or, you know, just their, their best sense. It's like. <laughs> I don't think most people can handle that these days. You know, they they're stuck in this like dichotomy of like, it can only be true or false. And, you know, if, if a prophet speaks out of his prophetic role, then I just can't handle it. Cause I don't know how to digest that. But yeah. uh, I wish we had more of that. Joseph Smith certainly gave us quite a bit to, to go on. And <laughs> anyway, yeah. Brigham Young too. Okay. Well, anything else to say on these topics, Cade? No, um, I think, you know, just to kind of add, the, the gospel is very broad. It, it, it stems from your clothes to descendants of, of Aaron in our day being a bishop without counselors. So uh, you name it, it covers it. So 
it's it's a beautiful and intricate tapestry so start trying to figure out how to weave it together yes can consume your life and uh offer you much for sure through the eternity so well thanks for joining us guys this week and uh send us your questions again got to remind you just click the link in the form there's a, a google form that you can fill out send us any question if it's a stupid question we'll throw it out or maybe we'll talk about it and make fun of you but uh, just ask us questions. We, we want to know what you guys think is important and what you want to hear us talking about. So uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks.